So a little bit of a backgrounder. This war, or the fall of Beitar, was the final stage in a devastating war, um, often called the Bar Kokh Rebellion or the Second Jewish War. It was probably the most devastating war in Israel's very, very long history, when there were a lot of wars. Um, but it was probably Israel's most devastating war in its history. We don't have all that much information about this war, um, not at least as much as we have about the first Jewish-Roman war that we were just studying about before the Talmud, and that um, the Talmud discusses, that the Midrashim discuss, and Josephus wrote a whole book on. Um, we have a lot of information about that. This war, um, which happened some 60 years later, we don't have as much information on. It is, uh, we do have some information about it. Roman historian Cassius Dio, um, in his book on Roman history, wrote about this war in great detail. Um, we also have Jewish sources on it. The Babylonian Talmud speaks about it. The Jerusalem Talmud speaks about it. Um, as well as there are Midrashiv that speak about it as well. Now, today we've also found amazing archaeological finds from that war, including notably in the 60s, 1960s, they found um, a cave near Ein Gedi that held um, where presumably um, a garrison of, Bar of the Barakuziba rebellion was, where a garrison was standing, and they found 15 letters, including one, some signed by Bar Kozeba himself, um, by Bar Kochbe himself. So, um, so we do have, we have these original letters, uh, which tell us a little bit about them. Um, there's a letter about, uh, a few letters about different command, fulfilling different commandments, making sure they got an esrog for Sukkot, um, at Lulav of an esrog, um, and fulfilling other rules, making it clear that they were very religious people, um, the people, the rebels um, in this war. So let's give you a little background. So the Romans came to Israel and took control of Israel in the year 63 um, BCE. So uh, the Romans took control of Israel. They took control of Israel during a civil war. At the time, the Hasmoneans, Chashmonaim, had ruled Israel for 80 years from the Hanukkah miracle when they chased out the Greeks. The Romans took control of Israel, and uh, they, ruled the, they ruled Israel. Um, first, there were different kings um, that were essentially um, vassals of, the, of Rome. Later, it became just a Roman province with Roman governors. Um, and, but after about 125 years, in the year 66, Roman, the Romans had persecuted the Jews, made very high taxes. They sacked the temple many times, taking all the gold and silver out. Um, they also would randomly kill Jews, made life very difficult. And so um, the Jews rose up in rebellion. And uh, this rebellion, known as the First Jewish-Roman War, was brutally crushed, and it led to the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the Temple, and according to Josephus, the death of as many as a million Jews. So it was a terrible, terrible calamity. Um, Jerusalem lay in ruins after the war. Uh, the Temple was destroyed. Um, but... Israel continued, the Jewish people continued, and so slowly life in Israel returned back to normal under Roman rule. Um, after the war, Rome, the Romans became much more tolerant towards the Jews. Maybe they felt less threatened by them. Um, so Jewish life in Israel back, gradually um, did go back to normal, um, but under Roman rule. In 117, um, the year 117, Hadrian became the emperor. Hadrian was the emperor for... Um, quite a number of years, uh, for some 20 years. And um, he was at first good to the Jews, and he actually helped them. 
uh, disputes Jews had with their neighbors. He sided with the Jews and um, helped them in a number of different ways. He went so far at one point that he allowed the Jews to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He said you could rebuild the city of Jerusalem, which still lay in ruins. There was only a Roman garrison there. And uh, you, you could rebuild the temple. So Jews hearing this came from all over the world to rebuild the temple. However, there were the Kutites. The Kutites were Samaritans. Uh, that's the Talmudic term for Samaritans, um, who had stopped the building of the second temple many, many years earlier, went to Hadrian to protest the um, rebuilding of the temple. And as a result, Hadrian stopped the building of the temple rather than order the temple no longer be built and rescind a previous order. He rather ordered that the temple be built in a different spot, a different place, which effectively ended the rebuilding of the temple. So people were furious, people were very upset. They were going to take up arms right then and there against the Romans. The great sage Rabbi Yehoshua went to calm down the people who were demonstrating, and he said, he told them the following tale. This is the way the Talmud tells it, that there was a lion that had a bone stuck in its throat. And it said, any animal that can come and get the bone out of my throat will get a great reward. And so there was a bird, I'm not sure which bird it was, with a long neck. That is able to that was able to stick its uh, its beak into the lion's throat and pull out the bone. And it turned to the lion and said, "Now give me my reward." And the lion said, "Your reward is that I did not bite your bite your neck while you stuck your head in my in my mouth." And so Rabbi Yochanan said the same thing. Also, uh, be happy that the Romans have not harmed us. They haven't done anything bad to us. They haven't destroyed us. Um, Don't complain that you cannot build a temple. Anyway, things got worse, though. Um, Hadrian, at this point, turned on the Jews. He decided that he was going to rebuild Jerusalem, which had lay in ruins now for close to 60 years, as a Roman city that he was going to call Aila Capitolina. And he was going to build a temple for the idol Jupiter on the Temple Mount. And so in recent years, actually, we've found, very recently, um, archaeologists have found um, the remains of Aila Capitolina, um, actually right next to the Western Wall. They found the big stadium that the Romans had built, all buried underground, uh, that was right next to the uh, Western Wall, and we found remains of the city, along with uh, coins from then. So Hadrian goes further, and he forbade circumcision throughout the Roman Empire. He made it illegal to circumcise. Jews were told, the Talmud tells a number of places, continue during this point to circumcise secretly. Uh, They didn't give up circumcision. But they were very upset about it. Circumcision was illegal. Effectively, the most basic Jewish side of being Jewish um, was made illegal throughout the Roman Empire. So it appears that the Jews at this point began preparing for war. Most likely they had been preparing, some Jews at least, had been preparing for war secretly for many years. And that included stockpiling arms. Um, Now, producing arms in Rome, in the Roman Empire, was very heavily regulated. All arms had to be accounted for. Um, You couldn't just make arms. You had to be approved. You had to get permission to um, make arms um, in order to ensure that Rebels weren't armed. And so Jews managed to get into the business of producing arm for the Roman military. And then what they would do is they would sabotage 
uh, the arms that they made, so that they were oh, they, uh, that they were uh, uh, that they were defected, and so the Roman military would refuse delivery. When they would bring them the arms, they would say these are defected, and they would not take them. And then the Jews would then get to keep these arms that they would then fix, and they would then put in smart Jewish um, a Yiddish cup they call it, right? Um, and then they would they would hide these they would hide them and put them in their storehouses. They also dug caves, they dug fortifications. The Jews in preparation for this war dug hundreds of caves, cave systems across Israel that allowed them to hide, to keep supplies, to attack. Um, and as of today, more than 350 such cave systems have been found in Israel, um, hand dug cave systems that Jews built that we found that are still there uh, that they were able to, uh, that included rooms and uh, for storage and for living quarters and uh, often included uh, multiple caves that were interconnected, often with very, very narrow passageways that sometimes required crawling, which would make it hard for the Romans to, if they did enter the cave system, city for them to get through it. City of Not City of David. City of David is in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem at the time was um, destroyed. This is not in the city of David. The caves in the city of David are from much, much earlier. Uh, that, those are from the days of Kik Chizkiyahu, which is many, many, many years earlier. Uh, this, is, this is all across Israel. We've found all across Judea, southern Israel, um, particularly around Beitar, where the final stand was. Uh, we've even found in northern Israel, we've found lots of cave systems. Um, so um, leading this rebellion when it started... Um, was a powerful and charismatic leader called Shimon Bar Koziba. Now, Shimon Bar Koziba um, was, uh, was, is commonly called Bar Kochva, which is why, uh, why it's often called the Bar Kochva Rebellion. Kochav in Hebrew means a star. In the, in the Torah, in the prophecy of Bilam um, that we read a couple weeks ago, it says, Darach Kochav Miyakov, a star will rise forth from Jacob and referring to the future redeemer of Israel. And so um, Rabbi Akiva, the great sage who supported Bar Koziba, uh, declared that, Rabbi, that Bar Koziba is fulfilling the prophecy of this star rising from Jacob. And therefore he was often called Bar Kochba, which means the star. Um, so he became known as Shimon Bar Kochba, um, though his name was actually Bar Koziba. So... We know that for certain because we have his signature now, right? We found letters that he wrote. So we know that his, um, his real name was Marcus. So, so the Jews waited to um, actually begin the war. They waited for the unsuspecting Hadrian, uh, who was visiting Israel at the time. He was visiting Israel and Egypt. They waited for him to leave back to Rome before beginning the rebellion. The exact year of the rebellion is somewhat disputed, among historians, uh, historians generally think that the rebellion began around the year 130, some say 132, and some have it a little earlier in the 120s. Uh, but it was approximately 60 years after the structure of the temple, which was destroyed also possibly in the year 69 or the year 70. So um, the actual trigger for this rebellion the Talmud says, was really something minor, which is often what happens. They were 
clearly preparing for rebellion for many years, and it was ready to go, but it needed some trigger to get it going. And the actual trigger was a very minor thing. Hadrian's daughter, the princess, was traveling in Israel when her wagon broke. And Jews at the time had this custom that when a child was born, they would plant a tree. And when the child, when the child would get married, they would cut down the tree to build their chuppah. That was the custom. Nice custom. So when the princess was traveling through Israel, her wagon broke, her men went, found the nearby tree, cut it down in order to fix the wagon. Little did they know that this was a tree designated for someone's chuppah. And so the locals in that town were furious, and they came and they attacked the princess. And so when the governor at the time, Turnus Rufus, who had caused Israel a lot of Jews a lot of headache, and was a very wicked man, the Talmud tells us, when Turnus Rufus um, hears that, he sends soldiers to attack or to catch those people, and the soldiers are attacked, and that essentially is the opening um, of the rebellion. Um, very quickly, um, the rebels begin to attack garrisons across the entire country, across all of Israel, um, and they attack Roman garrisons. They use what they call today guerrilla tactics that worked for the Maccabees in Israel to get rid of the Greeks some 300 years earlier. And they attacked one garrison coming out of nowhere. They attacked um, one garrison after the next. They attacked one garrison after the next. Um, when the legions came to help from Egypt, from Syria, they sent legions. Eventually, they um, destroyed the, lo- the legions that were in Jerusalem, that were elsewhere in Israel, the Roman legions. And so other legions were brought from nearby lands, and they were attacked as they traveled on the roads before they even got there, something that the Maccabees had already perfected. Um, they were attacked as they traveled on the roads, and um, these legions were destroyed as well. So Bar and his troops quickly gained control over most of Israel, and went about creating a functioning government across Israel. And we have some documents that we found, and archaeologists have found, um, showing they had governors all over Israel, and land deeds, and all sorts of other things that they did. Um, while they also were preparing for war, because they knew the war wasn't yet over. Um, Bar Kozima declares himself Nasi, or king of Israel, and began to mint coins, many of which have been found, minting coins of himself, as where it says, Shimon Bar Kuziba, the Sea Israel, Shimon Bar Kuziba, Prince of, or King of Israel, and uh, it gives the years, year one to the um, freedom of Jerusalem, or to the independence of Jerusalem, year two to the independence of Jerusalem, and even year three to the independence of Jerusalem. So we know that he um, ruled over Israel before the war significantly destroyed his um, reign. Um, he ruled over Israel for um, the Talmud says two and a half years. Rabbi Akiva, as we mentioned, declared Bar Kuziba to be the Moshiach, and he strongly encouraged him. The Talmud does tell us that not all sages agreed. Some sages did not back him, but Rabbi Akiva was the greatest sage of his day. The Talmud tells us that Bar Kuziba's men were very, very brave. So brave that in order to join his army, you had to cut off a finger. It showed your bravery. When the sages, however, protested, you are making Jews um, 
blemish, you're stuck without fingers. So he said, he asked for another suggestion as to how he can test his troops. And they, so his, they suggested that he have them ride on a horse and uproot a tree while riding on a horse. If they could do that, they could join his army. So uproot, pull up a tree. Pull up a tree while riding on a horse. Yeah. So, um, so he had it all, our sages say he had it all 400,000 we actually have from multiple sources. He had all, in all 400,000 well-trained troops. Now, mind you, 400,000 is a very, very large army. Um, and presumably it was a very large percentage of young Jews at the time in Israel um, had joined the rebels. Um, and Hadrian quickly realized that this was no small rebellion. He was facing a massive rebellion. Unlike the first rebellion of Israel, where Israel had been split, and there had been, it had been disorganized, and there had been many different militias that were fighting each other. This was a well-organized, highly centralized rebellion um, against a massive and very well-trained army who had been training for years in preparation for this rebellion, who knew the terrain very well. Um, it was their homeland. And they had dug hundreds of caves. They were well-hidden in caves. And all this was in Judea, which was at the very center of the Roman Empire. It was right on the Mediterranean coast. Uh, so it was in a pretty prominent place in the Roman Empire. He couldn't afford to lose it. So he called Julius Severus, who was at the time the governor of Britain. Hadrian's most famous for the Hadrian Wall that he built in Britain um, to keep out the invaders from the north, the Scottish invaders. Um, and so, um, so, he, so Julius Severus had succeeded in, um, in um, securing Britain, and he was considered the greatest Roman general of his day. And so he brought him all the way from Britain um, in order to personally oversee the war. Um, in this war, at least 10 of the 24 Roman legions, 40% of the Roman military were brought in to crush this rebellion from the entire Roman Empire, so much so that the Romans had to institute a draft in order to, which they didn't generally do throughout much of the Roman history, in order to have enough people to man the Roman military, just to give you a sense of the size of this um, army. Um, Hadrian himself also returned to personally oversee the war. It became one of, Rome, one of the most brutal Ro wars in Rome's history. We know that a number of legions were totally destroyed in this war um, because a number of legions after this war disappear. They're never heard of again. They, would have been, they were decimated. Um, it was so bad that in later wars, in the great war against the Parthians, they describe how bad the war was. It was as big a war as the war against Judea. So it, gave, it gives you a sense as it being one of the greatest wars that Rome ever fought. Um, and so, so bad were the Roman losses in this war that in the final report to the Senate, normally the Roman would write, um, all is well with the troops, peace to the troops. He didn't write that in his report to the Senate because so many troops had died in this war. So Julius Severus realizes that he would not succeed in this war in a regular battle against what was essentially a giant, well-trained, but invisible army. He realized there was no way he could succeed. 
uh, um, just in an open war, in the regular war tactics. And so instead, he employed a brutal siege and scorched earth policy. He started with the coast to block supplies so that Israel, the Jews would not be able to restock weapons, food. And he went from town to town, taking one town at a time, um, putting roadblocks on the roads, um, and essentially taking one town at a time. And every town he got to, because many towns had caves underneath from which Jews would jump up and attack Romans out of nowhere and then disappear into the countryside, he employed a scorched earth policy. Every town he came to, he soon destroyed the town and killed its inhabitants. Town after town, village after village, city after city, slowly, bit by bit, in something that took, uh, the total war took about three and a half years. Um, he essentially depopulated all of Judea, or the whole southern part of Israel. The rebels were slowly, through this scorched earth policy, were slowly pushed back um, as they destroyed town after town, village after village, um, towards, and they pushed back and pulled back towards their headquarters. Their headquarters were not in Jerusalem, presumably because Jerusalem had a Roman garrison, so they couldn't really properly fortify it. Um, it had a Roman garrison before the war, so they couldn't properly fortify it during their secret preparations. And it wasn't much of a city, it had been destroyed. And so, um, and so uh, the rebels moved back to Beitar, which at the time was heavily fortified. Now, Beitar itself is up on a mountain, and the mountain itself was built with, um, was built with ridges, essentially, where there was a wall, and then it had been built many years earlier. The way they would, um, Israel's very mountainous. The way, you, um, the way you farm on the mountain is you've got to flatten it out. So you would build walls and fill in the dirt to flatten it out. And... Um, terraces. Sorry? Terraces. terraces. Thank you. They would build these terraces. And so Beitar was built on terraces. And so they fortified these terraces, essentially creating a series of walls that the Romans would have to scale in order to overcome it. They also built a very, very complex system of caves around Beitar, in and around Beitar. Um, there were a number of springs, freshwater springs in Beitar, which gave them enough water. Um, so the Romans again um, employed, uh, employed scorched earth tactics in Beitar as well. Um, the Talmud describes that there were dikes um, that they built or walls that they built to block supplies coming in and from which they would shoot at Beitar. And there were 80,000 troops involved in the siege of Beitar itself. Um, the Talmud tells us that the beginning of Bar Kokhba's downfall came when he turned to God and he told God, we can manage on our own. Don't help us, don't harm us. We're just fine ourselves. So... Um, See what happens when you do that. <laughs> the Talmud tells us also, Marco Ziba actually had an uncle whose name was Rabbi Elazar Hamudai, who was a great sage and a holy man. And Rabbi Elazar every day would pray for Marco Ziba's success. 
And at one point, the emperor was so frustrated by this battle, which, as we mentioned, was resulting in huge Roman losses um, that appeared to be unsustainable. And um, that at a certain point, the emperor was going to give up. And a Kuti, a Samaritan, came to um, the emperor. um, Must have been someone who was on the inn, knew that the emperor was thinking of giving up and pulling back. Um, And he told the emperor, "I I can fix this for you. The reason why they're successful is because of their God and because of their righteous man, Rabbi Elazar Hamudai. I will have Rabbi Elazar Hamudai killed and you will that way be able to overcome him. And so what he did is, the Talmud says, he went into the city of Betar, the headquarters, and he went over to Rabbi Elazar who had spent all day in prayer. And he went over to him and he whispered into his ear, and the people looked at him. He was apparently a known individual that was helping the Romans. The people said, what did he say to Rabbi Elazar Abudai? And he refused to tell them. So they brought him before Bar Kuziba, Shema Bar Kuziba. He said, what did you say to Rabbi Elazar Abudai? He said, I cannot tell you. If I tell you, you'll kill me. Um, and so, um, so Bar Kuziba understood that he was um, talking to Rabbi Elazar about surrender. Uh, remember many years earlier, during the earlier rebellion, the previous rebellion, the sages had encouraged when the rebellion was lost. Um, during the first um, Jewish-Roman war, the sages encouraged, the religious leadership encouraged surrender towards the end. Uh, and here, Bar was afraid that Rabbi Elazar Hamudai, the great Jewish leader, spiritual leader, was encouraging surrender. So he went to Rabbi Elazar and he said, what did that man whisper in your ear? Rabbi Elazar says, I don't know. I didn't notice that he whispered anything in my ear. He had been, I had been busy praying, wasn't paying attention. And Baruch Kaziba was so upset that he kicked Rabbi Elazar and Rabbi Elazar, who was an old man, died. And at that point, Beitar was going to fall. Um, in other words, God had given up on Baruch Kaziba. Anyway, he, um, they, so the Romans continued in this scorched earth policy, gradually scaling the terraces of Beitar. Um, they actually pulled out um, the walls as they could in order to make the terraces fall. Um, and they gradually scaled Beitar, which itself was, uh, uh, with, uh, the, which at the time, we're told, had 600,000 people had fled to Beitar uh, for this last stand. Jews from all over Israel who were afraid. Uh, presumably most of those fighters um, had fled their families. Others had fled to Beitar and were in Beitar at this time. So it was really a... Um, uh, so there were a, lot of pe- there were a lot of people in the city. Beitar was finally, the city itself was finally breached on the 9th of Av. They got into the city proper on the 9th of Av. Uh, we don't know the, the debate as to which year it was. It's thought to have been 135 was the year that Beitar fell. Um, that's the year Hadrian um, declares himself to be victorious. So we presume that's when it fell, 135. Um, and so when Beitar fell, um, there was then they fought street to street, house to house, um, until the Romans killed every single person in Beitar. 
They, uh, anyone who tried to flee uh, was caught. They ringed the city. Um, and anybody who tried to flee was caught and was killed as well. Um, they went through the countryside and any Jew they found, they killed as well. Um, our sages describe uh, how, uh, how bad it was, um, saying that there was so much blood that the horses were up to their nostrils in blood. And there was a river of blood that flowed from Betar out to the Mediterranean Sea, which is more than 20 miles away. That was a sense of how, um, how many people were killed um, in this war. Not only that, the victims refused to allow the, Ro the, the Romans refused to allow the victims to be buried. So they allowed them just to sit there um, in, the, uh, in Beitar. Um, we're told they even used their bodies to, um, as, to build fences for vineyards in order to show how, um, their, uh, in order to further um, crush the Jewish spirit. Um, following the war, the Judea or southern Israel, which is essentially um, the, all of Israel south of the Galilee, Israel was split in those days between Judea, which is the mountainous area, what today would be um, the coastal area, the um, Judea Samaria area, southern Israel, uh, that was Judea. And so all of Judea essentially lay in ruin after the war. It was simply uninhabited and uninhabitable. There were no people left. Everybody had been killed. Um, and um, all the villages, all the towns had all been destroyed. There was nothing left. And um, southern Israel, Judea, would essentially, while a few towns would be rebuilt, um, Jerusalem most notably, and the port of Jaffa and a handful of others, uh, following the war, Judea or southern Israel would never really be rebuilt until 1800 years later, until the 20th century, when um, the um, when Jews came back and began to build towns. Um, southern Israel, much of southern Israel, was never really rebuilt, uh, and so almost every village, every town had been destroyed. There were very, very few inhabitants left at this point. Um, Hadrian, at this point, went ahead with his plan to turn Jerusalem into a Roman, um, into a Roman um, town, which had been Aila Capitolina, uh, which had been put on hold um, because of the war. And so um, they plowed over the Temple Mount. They plowed over Jerusalem, which was a sign that they were destroying the Jewish remnants of Jerusalem, flattened the city, and then they built a new town from scratch with temples to their idols, and um, stadiums and a new Roman town on top of what had been the city of Jerusalem. Um, the Romans then went on to kill most of the Jewish leadership, including Rabbi Akiva, one of the many poems that we read in our kiddos today, in our, um, in our poetry, of, uh, uh, lamenting poetry that we read uh, during our prayers today, tell us about the um, martyrs that were killed then, the great sages that were killed, Rabbi Akiva, the great sage was tortured to death, um, along with many, many other sages. The Romans that also outlawed all Jewish practice throughout the Roman Empire. You couldn't keep kosher. You couldn't keep Shabbos. You couldn't wear tefillin. You couldn't circumcise your children. You couldn't study Torah. Every, every form of Jewish practice 
was uh, made illegal. The goal was to wipe out Judaism, that there should be no more Jews. Every form of Jewish practice was made illegal. This period became known as the period of Shemad. Shemad in Hebrew means destruction, but it's come to be a period where they don't allow us to practice Judaism. Uh, we had such a period earlier during the days of Greek rule that led to the, Bar Koch, the, um, the Maccabee Rebellion. Um, but here, was, uh, here it happened again, and this time it appears to have happened for a significantly longer amount of time. It's unclear exactly how long it lasted, but for a number of years, Jews were forbidden to practice Jerusalem, uh, Judaism in any form. Um, of course, Jews continued to practice Judaism. Many Jews fled the Roman Empire, heading eastward to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia at the time, Babylon, was under um, Parthian rule. Uh, the Parthians were good to the Jews. There was a flourishing, wealthy, successful Jewish community throughout Babylon and Persia and moving further eastward um, along the Silk Route to China. There were many, many flourishing Jewish communities and so many Jews fled the Roman Empire at this point, uh, moving eastward. And at this point, this was really effectively uh, the uh, low time of Jews in the Roman Empire uh, and really what led the community in Babylon and uh, the eastern Jewish communities to really become so much larger and so much more prominent. Um, Jews did study Torah in secret. Rabbi Akiva himself, before he was caught, continued to teach Torah. Uh, we know other Jews continued to practice um, Torah. Hadrian died a couple years later in 138. There was a new emperor, um, Antoninus Pius. It's not clear if he or a later emperor eventually reversed these rules outlawing Judaism. Eventually, um, they did allow them to bury the dead of this war, of this terrible war. Um, and our sages say that miraculously, none of the bodies had decomposed. So even though, um, even though uh, they had sat for years, miraculously the bodies had not decomposed. And as it was to celebrate that miracle, our sages composed a special blessing that we should, that we should say when we... Um, our sages composed a special blessing that we should say when we, um, when we do the, after we eat, we have uh, what we call the Birkat HaMazon, benching uh, in Yiddish, that we say when we finish our, uh, after we eat, um, that included three blessings. And they composed the fourth blessing, which goes with the words, Hatov Vahabetiv, who he is, he, he who is good and who does good, celebrating that even after this terrible calamity and these terrible things that happen, um, God is still good, and God has made this great miracle for us. And so every time we eat, we say this additional blessing as well. So um, this, this war um, was one of the most devastating wars in our history, if not the most devastating. The first war, it was devastating for the Romans too. The Romans used four legions in the first war, they used 10 in the second war. Um, the first war that destroyed our temple is usually thought of as the moment, which, was about, which ended about the year 69 or 70, is usually thought as the moment that marks the beginning of our exile. Our exile begins when our temple was destroyed. But the truth is that though our temple was destroyed and many Jews were killed after the first war, 
And although and many Jews were taken as slaves back to Rome, most Jews remained in the land of Israel. And the land of Israel was still majority Jewish after the first war with, uh, after the first Jewish-Roman war. Um, there were still millions of Jews living in Israel at the time. Uh, and throughout Israel, and while there were some Roman or Greek communities in Israel, they were small, um, much smaller, and um, Israel was by and largely Jewish. Um, after the second war, though, with the total scorched earth policies that the Romans had, destroying all of Judea so that nothing survived, um, by the end of the, the, the Bar Kokhba war, there really were no Jews in southern Israel. And many of the Jews, if not most of the Jews in Israel, had been killed. So that really ended, by and large, the Jewish presence in Israel. Jews continued to live in northern... Judea is totally destroyed. Nobody lives, lives in southern Israel. Later, Christians and Muslims are going to come back to Jerusalem, Hebron, some of the big cities, um, and inhabit some small villages around them. But Israel would ne- southern Israel would never really be um, greatly inhabited after that. Um, the, uh, the, the Jews continued to live in northern Israel, but um, northern Israel was much smaller compared to what was now larger Jewish communities, such as the community in Babylon. Um, during this period also, as the Jewish community in Israel um, was shrunken, um, we essentially ended up in exile. Um, right after this period, um, Jews had a period of calm and peace in northern Israel. Not, they didn't live in southern Israel. And during this period, the great leader, Rabbi Yehuda Hadassi, recognized that the period of calm was going to be short-lived. He recognized correctly. And that um, something should be done. The Torah, until that had been oral, taught orally, without mouth-to-mouth, generation-to-generation, had not been written down. And so he decided to write down the Torah in the book of the Mishnah, which is the first part of our Torah that was written down, of our oral Torah that was written down. And so um, the book of the Mishnah was written right then, um, in the ne- a couple decades later. Um, and that really marked um, a change in Judaism. And uh, from then on, um, the, the Sanhedrin, which was the Supreme Council of Judaism, that made all decisions for Judaism and had the final say of everything, um, continued to function after the first war because after the first war um, they had moved with Roman permission they moved from Jerusalem to Yavne where they continued to function however following the second war the Sanhedrin had been completely decimated completely destroyed and while they did reconvene um, they never really regained their full strength and never really came back and uh, they eventually it disbanded some 200 years later the um, Sanhedrin was totally disbanded so uh, this really began the beginning of our decline, the beginning of the decline of the Jewish people. Um, and so in many ways, our exile began with Bar Kokhba. So while the destruction of the temple is a terrible tragedy, um, in many ways, the Bar Kokhba tra- tragedy uh, was uh, much worse and uh, really begins the beginning of our temple, uh, of our exile. Yet the Bar Kokhba rebellion also gives us hope. Um, the Rambam Maimonides describes Bar Kokhba the, as, the, um, as a man who could have been Moshiach and as a savior of Israel and as an example of what the future savior of Israel will be like. It gave us a sense that we can go back and we can reclaim the land and we can um, 
create a Jewish country once again, and it gave us that sense of hope. And so while Tisha B'Av today is a day of mourning, a day of sadness, where we mourn for all the horrible things that happened to our people, um, it's a day of sadness, we mourn for um, our long history of suffering, it's also a day of happiness. Um, and uh, our sages say that together with the sadness, there's also a joy knowing that... Um, that we have a bright future ahead of us, that Moshiach is going to come, and as well as the joy of our survival, right? Although we have been persecuted all these years, we're still here to tell the tale. The Romans, they're long gone, right? And we're still here years later. Um, when, we were in our trip to, uh, when we were on our trip to Israel, first day we went to Caesarea, where, which was the Roman capital, and over there they have still the, um, the um, Colosseum, that the Romans built there, where we believe our leaders were killed. Uh, they would have been killed publicly. And so uh, we were there, and uh, what's amazing is that the Romans are gone. And now we're the ones that are there, right? We've taken over. So, um, so yeah, so though they disappear, um, we continue, and uh, our people have continued throughout all these years. So um, that's the beauty of our, of our nation, our people. We're strong, we continue. And we know that Moshiach will yet come and we will all go back to the land of Israel and we will get a chance to rebuild our temples. Our temple and all the enemies in Israel will all um, disappear and uh, will stop bothering us. So we mourn our tragedies today, but we also think of the bright future that is awaiting us. So uh, I'm going to stop here a little early. We're going to have... We're going to...